having a sense of humor. Um, it may not be joy specifically, but it helps promote joy in our lives. Amen? Yeah, if you've forgotten how to laugh, you need to relearn it. And so, as all too many of us have come to find out, life can become overwhelming. And having that sense of humor or having joy in your life, the truth is it's optional. And I would suggest strongly that you choose to have joy. You know, no one can force anyone else to have it. They can't obligate you to have a a joyful countenance. You know what? Let's just do this. I want each of you to look at the person next to you and give them the dirtiest look you can give them, right? Oh, man, this is, this is priceless. Just hold that for a minute. Some of you, your expression hasn't changed. <laughs> That's why this is so necessary. <laughs> this, this quality of having joy, it really doesn't have anything to do with age or, or the maturing process. I, you know, one of, the, one of the great things in life is when I am around someone who is on in years, in their 80s or in their 90s, and they just have a joyful countenance about themselves. Uh, if you could ask them they would, uh, about their relationship with Jesus, they would say something like this, my only regret is that I didn't make the decision much earlier in life. And you know what? Some of those that have replied in answer to that question to me have been serving Jesus for 60 and 70 years. So they've experienced the joy that comes from serving Jesus. And I will just say this. If you don't have joy in serving Jesus, something's wrong with your serving. Amen? Um. Joy isn't dependent upon circumstances. It's not dependent upon other people. It's not dependent upon how much money you have, possessions. Neither does it have anything to do with being good-looking. Amen? It doesn't have anything to do with having a great job or anything else external because joy comes from the inside. And joy has a way of working itself outwardly. Years ago, I heard the story of a woman whose name was Lucy Mabry. She was the first female professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, and she was married to a very successful doctor who unfortunately died tragically in an airplane crash. This terrible tragedy took place in their lives at the time of life when they should have been experiencing life at its very best, and yet in spite of that, Lucy Mabry deliberately chose joy in the midst of her tragedy. She grieved. Of course she grieved. And in many ways, she continued to grieve for a long period of time, but she was determined not to give herself over to perpetual grief. That is, grief that goes on and on and on forever. So how does one go on after such a tragedy as that? How does one eventually press beyond the grieving process? How can one grow following tragedy? How can a mom put her arms around her children as a single parent and still be able to laugh at the things that life throws at at her? Well, I'll tell you how. It comes from deep within. Philippians chapter number 1. Beginning with verse number 3. Paul says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He then says, it's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. 
And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. One said it this way. One ship sails east, one ship sails west. Regardless of how the winds blow, it's the set of the sail and not the gale that determines which way we go. I love that. It's the set of the sail. How do you set your sails for joy? Lucy Mabry, that I just spoke of, she set her sail for joy, not on the life of her husband, not on a set of circumstances that would guarantee that her life would always be peaceful and quiet and placid and delightful. Her confidence was in God. She knew that God works all things together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purposes. And we, like her, can grow beyond heartache. We can grow beyond loss and disappointment. But we, it requires that we ha- make a choice to choose joy no matter what life has thrown at us. And all of that brings us to this magnificent 104-verse letter that Paul writes to the church in Philippi. It's, a, it's what I would call a brief, joyful almost contagious letter. We read in verses 1 through 11 in typical first century fashion that the Apostle Paul, he greets them in verses 1 and 2, and we talked about that last week, and then he begins to tell them of his, of his gratitude, and he wishes them well and offers them a prayer of a very specific nature. Now, I want to just look for a moment at this greeting when, when you read in verses 1 and 2 these words, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Imagine in your mind that you are a, the church in Philippi. You've only been established for some 10 years. And in the 10 years that have passed... The Apostle Paul has gone on. He's the one who founded the church. And he's gone on and established churches in several different places. And here he greets these saints with a letter. Now, as I said, he founded this church. But he not only founded this church, but ten years earlier, he had been arrested in their city for doing good. Ten years Prior, they had watched as God pulled together a small band of believers in this city. And as a result of the ministry of the Apostle Paul, the church in Philippi, this Roman colony, had been established. Paul was their advocate. He was their friend. He was their teacher. He was their leader. And they respected and they admired him greatly. And I'm wondering as I read that greeting, if, if as they open this letter and begin to hear the words of Paul... Their minds are taken back 10 years earlier to when they first got to meet this amazing man. Perhaps their feelings mirrored those of 16th century Germans who had a spokesman by the name of Martin Luther. Martin Luther had the courage to help those people break away from the works-oriented control of the Catholic Church. Perhaps it was similar to to 19th century African Americans who who were set free from slavery under the leadership of President Abraham Lincoln. But whatever they thought, it had to be fond memories. Memories like, we are believers in Jesus because this man came to our city and, and endured persecution and punishment and all for the purpose of bringing us the good news that Jesus saves. Wow. In his greeting, we notice that Paul also mentioned the the name of Timothy. Timothy was Paul's student. Paul was teaching Timothy the things that would need to be passed on after Paul's departure from this life. 
And Timothy was also beloved of the church in Philippi. And we will later see that Timothy will come to visit this church again on Paul's behalf. But let me just comment on Paul and Timothy. This was what you would call a dynamic duo. Paul didn't consider himself to be some kind of prima donna. He, he considered himself to be nothing more than a servant of Jesus Christ. Timothy, whose name means one who honors God, he was also a servant of Jesus. And he and Paul were bound together by the Greek word dolos, which means bound by a relationship that, uh, that was so close that only death could break it. This is a letter from two servants, Paul and Timothy, to saints. Now, I know I've called them believers, but I want to talk about the word saints for a moment. You know, we, we know of a lot of, of churches, even in, uh, around the world and even in America today, that have as their in their name the word saint. I mean, the ones that I'm aware of, of course, St. Anthony. Uh, St. Mary in Garden City, St. Dominic in Garden City, St. Paul in New York City, St. Paul Catholic Church. All of these churches were given names to commemorate saints who had left a legacy of one type or another upon their death. And the saints to whom Paul and Timothy were writing were actually saints that were still alive. They weren't named after somebody who had gone on, or they weren't addressing somebody who had gone on. They were addressing saints who were still alive. Now, why am I mentioning that? Because I came across an article some time ago written by a man whose name was William Griffin entitled, How Saints Are Made. Now, just a bit of trivia for you. Pope Francis, the current pope, in his time as pope since 2013, has canonized or sainted more individuals than all of the other popes combined. Did you know that? In fact, he has sainted 838 people as of July 2019. But in this article by William Griffin, he said that in order to be canonized or sainted by the Catholic Church, it requires having connections and having a great deal of money. Now, what that tells me is that I'm probably never going to be known as St. Terence. But it also tells me that there's probably not going to be any St. Jacob or St. Belinda. And there's sure not going to be any St. Gary. <laughs> but these saints to whom Paul and Timothy are writing were not that type of saint. They didn't get this title by virtue of having connections or having a great deal of money. In fact, quite the opposite was true. They were writing to saints just like every one of us in this room who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at yourself and say, I am a saint. There you go. Doesn't that feel special? But what is a saint? saint a saint is one who has been set apart for God's service. We become saints at the moment that we're born again into the family of God. And Paul offers to these saints in Philippi two things. Grace and peace. Grace being something that comes to us which we don't deserve. And peace being something that happens in us as a result of grace. Now, let me just say this. About 99.9% .9 of the time, that's altogether different than what's happening on the outside of us. So we need peace. I was talking to someone just yesterday uh, about, you know, all, all of the stuff that's going on in our world. And, and ha or I guess it was Friday, I'm sorry. And, and it's Brother Curtis Nestergaard came down to my office. And we're, we're talking about all the things that are going on in the world and he said, you know, it's easy to get your focus on those, those things. But what we have to remember and what we need to be focusing on is the peace of God that passes understanding that helps us to get through those things. These people in Philippi, just like us, needed peace. You know, you're not supposed to feel peace when you're told of your husband's tragic death. 
You're not supposed to feel peace when you find out that you've lost your job. You're not supposed to feel peace when things all around you are are troubled and, and chaos. But Paul offers grace and peace to these saints in Philippi. And they live, trust me, in an, area, in an era that was anything but peaceful. They were undergoing horrific persecution simply because they were believers in Jesus Christ. So I guess you could say that being a saint cost them something too. It cost them a lot of persecution. And here's Paul writing this letter designed to bring them peace. There's a Jewish word that we have translated as peace. You've heard it, I'm sure. It's the word shalom. However, the word shalom is better translated as meaning to be bound together. And it gives the connotation of something or someone being so closely bound together with someone else that harmony is the result. Um, How many of you prefer harmony to conflict? I hope so. There's nothing worse than being in conflict with someone. A a woman and a man in a marital relationship should be in a shalom relationship. Heart and soul friendships should be shalom relationships. Being so closely knit together that harmony develops. Now why is that important? Because God tells us through the prophet Isaiah, one of my favorite verses in the Old Testament, in Isaiah chapter 26, verse number 3, he will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are stayed on, the, on him. That was really difficult for me not to quote King James. He will keep us in perfect peace if our minds are stayed on him. Do you want peace? Just be in a shalom relationship with God. Keep your mind in harmony with God's mind. That's why Paul will tell us later in chapter number 2, let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on and describes what that looks like in in a relationship. But if you trust God, he will give you peace. And peace in the midst of a storm is a byproduct of joy. You can't have one without the other. Now, though Paul had every reason not to do so, he gives us the example. He is choosing joy in the midst of his circumstances. For those of you that weren't here last week, let me just repeat what his circumstances are at the writing of this letter. He's jailed. He's chained to a Roman guard. He hears the roars of the Roman crowds cheering the death of believers in the Colosseum, and he realizes that his number could be up next to be paraded in front of the lions in the Colosseum or to be beheaded. And in spite of those circumstances, Paul chooses joy. Now, how did he do it? How can we do it? I'll tell you. One ship sails east, one ship sails west. Regardless of how the winds blow, it's the set of the sail and not the gale that determines which way we will go. Paul set his sail on the very thing that he was offering to these saints in Philippi, grace and peace. And then he gives us several reasons for his joyful thanksgiving for these saints. First of all, he has good memories of them. His memory of the church in Philippi made Paul smile. Why? Because he has no regrets. He has no ill feelings toward anyone in that church. And he has no unresolved conflicts with anyone. Now you can probably imagine why I'm mentioning that. How many of us those have those types of feelings about someone from our past. You know, just a few weeks ago, we were in the midst of, of course, the overwhelming sadness as the result of Justin's death. And and in the midst of all of that, I became deeply convicted of a situation that took place between me and a member of Brenda's family probably two and a half years ago. 
It was a dispute between that family member and myself that had resulted in us breaking a relationship that had formerly been a good relationship. Uh, He had become very vocal and, in my opinion, offensive concerning his political views and his views particularly on the gay lifestyle which he lives. And I'd kind of grown weary of hearing it, seeing it on social media. So I voiced my feelings about some of his opinions. And he took great offense to that and told me that I was the most, and I quote, thin-skinned preacher he'd ever known and that I could go blank myself. That's a quote. Now his parents, whom I deeply love and appreciate, they're getting on in age. His mom in particular is experiencing some serious health issues. And and because of everything that had happened with Justin, here I am considering my own mortality. And it made me keenly aware of the fact that very likely, I'm either going to have to officiate or attend a funeral for one of his parents in the not-too-distant future. And I didn't want to have to be in that situation with this broken relationship in place. So here's what I did. I took the first step. And I contacted him to apologize for my part in the disagreement and to let him know that no matter what our differences, I desired for our friendship to be restored. The next morning, I was awakened by a message from him, and I'm going to read it to you verbatim. Terry Engler, you are a great man. Wow. Praise God that this family has you to lead them through this tragedy. That you reached out to me is so touching. It has brought me to tears and touched my heart so deeply. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And of course I forgive you and please forgive me. Know that I love you and your family so much and that my heart aches so deeply for all of you. Anyone think I felt a little more peace after hearing that? I can't even describe to you what a load that took off of me. And that's what Paul is talking about here in verses 3 and 8. He has no ill feelings even toward those who threw him into prison. In fact, the Philippian jailer, we're going to find out here later, he even became a believer as a result of Paul's incarceration. And Paul even prays for those who put him in this situation. He prays that the believers in the the city of Philippi would continue to abound in love and through spiritual maturity begin to produce fruits of righteousness. He speaks of their partnership in his ministry of preaching the gospel. He says that from the day they took their first spiritual breaths, they stopped being spectators and became participators in the gospel. Now, I can't go on from that without saying a few words. I pray that as a church, Trinity Faith Church is not focused on being spectators. And by that I mean that we do not focus on our history. The good old days, you know, you've heard of them. And they were good old days. But they cannot any longer be our focus. But our our focus has to be on being participators in the present. Participating in the present and anticipating what God wants to do through us in the future. We have to be willing to roll up our sleeves and put on our gloves and be willing to take on whatever battle we are facing as a church. Someone described it this way, the task for God's people is getting off the bench and getting into the game. Not dusting off the trophies of how we once were. We have a wonderful heritage, and we're thankful for that. But who we are today and what we might become tomorrow ought to be the uppermost thought in our hearts and our minds. And perhaps then we come to the key verse in this entire letter. It's found in verse 6, and personally one of my favorite verses. Paul said, I'm sure of this. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion 
at the day of Jesus Christ. Man, I love that verse. Was it that life had become easy for Paul? No. Not if you look at his situation. Was it that all the, all the people in the church in Philippi were walking in right relationship with God? Probably not. But he was sure of this one thing. That he who had began the good work in them was going to complete it. Bring it to fruition at the day of Christ Jesus. And this brings Paul great joy because his confidence in God is a settled fact. And you and I today can have that same type of confidence. In practical terms, here's what it looks like. Paul knew that God was at work. He knew that God was in control. And he knew, once again, that God was working all things together for his ultimate good. Do you believe that about yourself? How many of you this morning love God? How many of you are called according to his purposes? Of course you are. Then you can be assured that God is going to work all things. You know, I was probably in my 30s before I figured out what all things really meant. That means the good things, the bad stuff, the tragedy, the sorrow. God is going to work all of that together for my good because I love God. And I'm called according to his purpose, just like each and every one of us who are believers this morning can say of ourselves. And that knowledge is what brings Paul his joy. Look at the words began and completion in that verse 6. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Those two words represent opposite ends of the spectrum. The concept of starting and completing. The work that God's grace has begun in us will by that same grace be fully done. Did you catch that? The work that God's grace has begun will by that same grace be fully done. There's another translation of this same verse that uses the word perfect rather than completion. And to fully understand the word perfect, we have to go back to Jesus hanging on the cross of Calvary. As he approached his last earthly breaths, John tells us that Jesus uttered the Aramaic words, teleostai, teleostai, which translated into English, and what we have in our Bibles are the words, it is finished. Now we know what Jesus was talking about. It was the work of salvation that he came to this earth to die in our place and take upon himself the penalty of our sin. He came for that work and he is saying at that moment that he breathed his last, that work is finished. It has been perfected, if you will. Teleo is the word And it's the root word of the word perfect. I want you to do something for me. Leonard, you still got that verse up there. I want you to look at verse 6. And I'll show you how I'm going to do it. And I want you to do it with your own name. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in Terry will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Insert your own name in there. He who began a good work in Terry on July 17th, 1965 will perfect that work at the day of Christ Jesus. Friends, it was God's grace that saved us. It's God's grace that's making us more and more like Jesus. And it's God's grace that will continue to do so until the day of Christ Jesus. That ought to bring us joy because we're living in a world of chaos and confusion. In the midst of that, we can know that Christ is working in us to make us like him and to present us before him holy and blameless. That's what gives Paul his joy. And John says it best in 1 John chapter 3, verse number 2. He says it this way, We know that when he appears... We shall be like him. 
for we shall see him as he is. Come on, folks. You're going to be like Jesus. You're going to be like Jesus. Peter says, heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. We're going to be sons of God. We're going to be just like him in all his majesty and splendor and glory. We're going to be like him. And here's why that's so important. If you need a word of hope for a friend or a wayward son or a wayward daughter or a husband husband or wife for whom you've been praying, not walking as closely with the Lord as they perhaps once did, that's your verse. Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work. Man, there's been times in my life when I know that I've had loved ones that have held on to that verse because of me. Oh, he may be being a knucklehead right now, but he who began a good work in him is going to complete it. Amen? Let me move on. I want to talk for a moment about joy stealers. Have any of you ever had to deal with joy stealers? You don't know who they are? Well, let me explain them for you because there's basically three of them. And all of them will work to destroy your joy and your confidence in God. The first one, his name is Worry. Do you know him? Worry is an extreme anxiety about something that may or may not happen. Now, I saw that in Webster's Dictionary, but alongside that was a picture of my mom. My, my best friend, when we were growing up, and I used to think that his mom and my mom were the very definition of worry. They would worry about us when there really wasn't anything to worry about. Oh, they worried about us when there was something to worry about, too. But what I'm saying to you this morning is that if worry is an extreme anxiety about something that may or may not happen, it can steal your joy. The second joy stealer's name is stress. Stress is intense strain over a situation which we cannot change or control. Stress. Anybody know him? The third one's name is fear. Fear is a dreadful uneasiness over the presence of evil, danger, or pain. So how do we deal with these joy stealers? By having a conscious awareness in our mind that God is still at work. He's at work in us and that he's working all this to bring him greater glory in the end. I heard the true story of a businessman who gave his business to God. He'd been building it for 15 years and devoting himself entirely to the building of that business. That same day that he gave it to God, his business burnt to the ground. Now, the next day, he was asked about the tragedy of his business burning to the ground. And here was his response. He said, yesterday afternoon, I gave this business to God. If he wants to burn it down, it's his business. Now, upon hearing that, most of us would say that's the most insane thing I've ever heard. But actually, it's really great theology. It is. Maybe a business burned to the ground is a greater glory than a business standing and making you its puppet. There are times in life when it takes the loss of something very significant in order for God to get our full attention. Whether it be losing a reputation or losing a collection of possessions, or a lost house, or a lost bank account, or a lost friend, a lost mate, even a lost child. There are things that God has to do sometimes to get our full attention. And he wants our full attention. Verse 7, Paul sounds perhaps somewhat defensive. There he says that they, the Philippians, have shared God's grace with him, whether in defense of the gospel or in his imprisonment. And then in verse 8 he says that he yearns for them with the affection of Christ Jesus. Now that's the deepest expression 
of affection possible. A man named John Powell authored a book that I have in my office. It's entitled, Why Am I Afraid to Tell You Who I Am? Leonard, do you want to put up that graph that we added at the last moment this morning? In that book, John Powell describes seven, or excuse me, five different levels of communication. And I'm going to try and illustrate it to you with, by using five concentric circles. And I apologize, this was done in a hurry this morning, so the circles may not be perfect for those of you that are OCD, but it'll still work. Um, five different levels of communication. The outer circle I will call cliché conversation. It's an example of, of that kind of conversation is someone asking you the question, how are you today? Have anybody been asked today, how are you? How did you answer? Did you tell them really how you were? (laughs) Most of us don't. Because they neither have the time nor the desire to know how we really are. (laughs) It's become cliche conversation. And then you move to the circle, the the second circle from the outside. It's what I would call the reporting of information. Now, I'm changing the terms that Powell used for the sake of clarity, so uh, just hold on with me. Reporting of information is the type of communication in which we are content to tell someone about somebody else without divulging too much about ourselves. That's a fancy way of saying the word gossip. No further explanations needed. The third circle represents what I call the sharing of ideas in order to produce judgment. Here's an example of that. It's when you you bounce ideas off of someone, and that is you you test the waters and see what kind of reaction they're going to have to what your idea is. You you understand what I'm saying? For example, you could say to, to someone, Uh, I'm thinking about uh, purchasing a trip to the moon here in a couple years. And they would say, are you crazy? You're bouncing ideas off of them so that they'll give you a response that will help you in developing whether you want to continue with that or whether you don't want to continue with that. And then we come to the next innermost circle, and that's what we call feelings. Oh, don't you love feelings? Feelings, for example, if I really want you to know who I am, I have to share with you my heart and not just what I know. Most people are really reluctant about sharing feelings. As a matter of fact, in the marriage counseling that Brenda and I do together, 95% of the time, marriages that we counsel with, they're problem is in their communication. And so what we do is we try to, we try to give them a, a visual. We have both of them as a circle. This is him. This is her. And where those circles intersect, there's this small space that we call feelings. And most of the time, if their communication has broken down, they're still in their individual circles. Because the sharing of feelings no longer takes place. And inevitably, if they get into that little area called feelings, and they say, well, this is how I feel, and the other one would say, you shouldn't feel that way. Oh, time out. Terry gets out the basketball referee whistle at that point and calls a foul. You can't tell anybody how to feel, how they feel. They feel what they feel. And most of the time when communication has broke down, it's because of they, no lo- they are no longer we- willing to share their feelings because they feel like, if I share my feelings, I'm going to get stomped on. Okay? But that brings us to the innermost circle, that circle that we call peak communication. Peak communication. And that innermost circle... And you'll, by the way, notice 
it's the smallest circle. The one least seldom used. That area of peak communication is absolute openness, transparency, and honesty. That's the type of communication, friends, that should depict every marriage where the sharing of information with a mate is okay knowing that what is shared is going to be completely confidential and that it's for no one else to hear. Now, I will also say that's what you can expect if you come to my office to talk to me about something. I grew up in a church where, back when they still did prayer requests, take 15 minutes every service for everybody to get out their prayer requests. I sat in a church service where a lady stood up and shared her need, and the pastor, in response to the sharing of her need, said, yes, you came and told me about da-da-da-da-da. And she just wilted because her confidence was broken. Peak communication, honest, transparent. Now, the reason I'm giving this to you is because not only do each of us need to analyze our own ability to communicate by observing this, but secondly, for the purposes of what the Apostle Paul is saying to commu- trying to communicate in his letter to the church in Philippi, is that his feelings for that church, his feelings of love for that church, are grounded in the affection of Jesus Christ. Can I put that in very practical terms that we can all understand? I don't care where you've been. I don't care what you've done. I love you through Jesus Christ. Is that the way our church operates? Is that the way churches operate? Should. Heard somebody say should. Absolutely. Oh, Billy Graham, he he knew that. How'd he close every service? Just as I am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. We ought to be loving people, no matter where they've been, no matter what they've done, no matter what they continue to do. Because we believe that Jesus Christ can change and transform. How many of you aren't what you used to be? Because of Jesus. Amen? That's why this is so important. He's saying, I, my feelings for this church are grounded in the affection of Jesus Christ and in his fervent desire that they too begin to love others with the same kind of love in which Jesus has loved them. But then he adds this to his desire. His desire is that their love abounds more and more. But then he says, I want you to love with all knowledge and discernment. Now, why do you think that might be important? Let me explain. It's important because love is like a river. And knowledge and discernment are the banks of that river. So with that mental picture in mind, if our river of love floods beyond the embankments of knowledge and discernment, we will find ourselves loving all the wrong things. You have to know what it's okay to love and what it's okay to stay away from. The Beatles of my generation, and many of you who are my age, once sang a song that went like this, love Love, love, all you need is love, right? Wrong. That's not all you need. Paul is saying knowledge and discernment are necessary in order to know what to love and what not to love. Jesus' own words in John chapter 1, uh, through the apostle John in 1 John 2.15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. How many of you think that's pretty important? Real knowledge and keen discernment keep love within its boundaries. 
floods will leave desolation and devastation. And that's what love flowing outside of the banks of knowledge and discernment will do. And as I close, we come to verse 10. Verse 10 tells us why we need to keep love within its banks. The word approve, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. That word approve, excuse me, that word approve means to test something, to recognize its worth, and then put a stamp of approval on it. An example would be a student who has studied to obtain a diploma and to graduate. He or she will only do so after their work has been analyzed and graded and approval given of their work by their professors, right? God is analyzing and grading our work. Are you with me? God is analyzing and grading our work. He deeply desires to give us his approval. But in order for him to do that, the results of our work must be excellent and pure and blameless for the day of Christ. So you see, Paul had high hopes for this church in Philippi. He's praying for them on their behalf that as they continue to grow in this matter of Christ-likeness, so that Christ may present the church to himself without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Don't look around, but just think of yourself. Holy, blameless, without blemish. I'm not there yet. But he who has begun a good work in me is going to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Grace, which began the work in me, will complete the work in me. We didn't sing it this morning, but... As I was preparing this message, actually not as I was preparing this message, I think I told you last week, I am giving an extreme makeover to a sermon series that I did 25 years ago, and that's what this is. But as I was giving it its extreme makeover, I couldn't help but think of a hymn that was written back in 1892 by a songwriter who is named Ralph Hudson. He said it this way. Never fear the clouds of sorrow, never fear the storms of sin. We shall triumph on the morrow, even now our joys begin. Lift his banner, shout his praises, for our victory is nigh. We shall join our conquering Savior. We shall reign with him on high. Tis a glorious church without spot or wrinkle. Washed in the blood of the Lamb, tis a glorious church without spot or wrinkle, washed in the blood of the Lamb. You see, Paul was sending this communication to the Philippian church with the innermost level of peak communication that his desire for them was for them to be able to one day hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Is that your desire this morning? To hear the well done? To receive your graduation, your promotion? We talked about, we talked about Margaret Trailer's graduation a couple of weeks ago at her memorial service. Rather than, rather than thinking of, oh, her life is over. No, it isn't. It's just begun. She's graduated. She's heard her well done. No one on this earth, friends, can affect your joy unless you allow them. Yesterday, or excuse me, each day has its own unique pressures, and each one of us has our own things to to deal with, but joy is always an option. One ship sails east, one ship sails west. Regardless of how the winds blow, it's the set of the sail and not the gale.
that determines the way that we go. I challenge you this morning to choose joy. Worship team, would you come please? I've been doing this on Wednesday evenings and and I do it here in this sermon series. I'm going to give you a challenge each week. How many of you feel like you're up to a challenge? A couple of you. Choose joy. Now, I'm challenging you to try choosing joy for the next week. And if it doesn't work, then you can go back to your worries, your stress, and your fears. And not only that, but you can come and tell me why it didn't work and why worry, stress, and fear are better options. Now, I just have a feeling I'm probably not going to hear from many of you. If you determinately choose joy. Your head's bowed, your eyes closed. Here's the question for today. Where have you set your sails? Have your sails been set for joy or for worry, stress, and fear? You see, I can't set those sails for you. If you've worried about your situation and anticipated the stress of it and promoted the fear of it, that is your choice, but there is a better option. And here's how you figure out what the better option is. You ask these questions. Who's in charge? Is God at work? Is he in control? And am I allowing him to work it all out for my good and for his glory? And if not, today you may need to make a decision to set your sails for joy. You're here this morning. Say, Pastor, this is really a simple invitation, by the way. I need to choose joy. Just raise your hand. Come on now. I need to choose joy in my life. Just raise your hand. Many, many hands all over the sanctuary. Well, you'll notice mine's raised too. I need to choose joy in the midst of some of the stuff that I'm going through right now. Grief at the top of the list. And it's extremely difficult to do. But with God's help, I keep my focus on the fact that, yes, I may have lost someone close to me, but that someone close to me is in the presence of Jesus, fully whole, fully alive forever. That brings me joy. Stand to your feet because you're going to need a partner to come alongside you in this challenge that I've left you this morning to choose joy. You know who that partner is? The Holy Spirit of God. He's your paraclete. Not your parakeet, your paraclete. It's a Greek word that means one who comes alongside and helps. Let's sing the song that the musicians are playing. Come Holy Spirit, I need you.